I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling. Welcome back to the FOSS podcast. It is my great honor to have on today's episode the former vice president of the United States, Al Gore. Most people know Vice President Gore as an inspiring politician and Nobel laureate, but in fact, he is also an incredibly gifted and dedicated storyteller. For over 40 years, he's been sounding the alarm of human-caused global warming. Since 1976, when he was a freshman congressman from Tennessee, he's been telling and retelling this urgent narrative to get people to wake up to the dangers of the climate crisis and act before it's too late. He's taken his message across media to great success with several best-selling books, an Academy Award-winning documentary, a Grammy-winning audiobook, and an Apple Design Award-winning iOS app. I feel fortunate to have worked closely with him on several of these projects, including the companion to the documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, and the app, our choice. Coming off that incredible string of successes, Vice President Gore launched the Climate Reality Project and traveled around the globe to train tens of thousands of activists on how to use climate science and the emotional power of compelling stories to raise awareness and inspire action. I'm awed by his unwavering commitment and his ability to constantly update his methods and venture into new forms of media. I invited him on the show today to learn from his years of experience and experimentation as a master storyteller. But before we get started, I'd like to take a brief moment to acknowledge our generous sponsor for this episode, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is working alongside others to build a national culture of health that provides everyone in America a fair and just opportunity for health and well-being. To help us all imagine what that could look like, we recently collaborated with the foundation on Take Us to a Better Place, a collection of short stories from some of today's most gifted fiction writers. It's an extremely powerful read, and as we find ourselves in the middle of a pandemic, also a timely one. I highly encourage you to check it out by visiting rwjf.org fiction, where you can download a free ebook copy or audio version. And now, my conversation with Vice President Al Gore. Al Gore, it is such an honor to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Charlie. It's such an honor to be on your podcast. We've worked together on so many books, and uh, I've been looking forward to it. It's really been one of the Great pleasures and honors of my life to be able to help you tell your story. So thank you, sir. It's been it's just been an amazing journey to get to work with you all these years. I thought today what we could do would be to talk about the fact that you've devoted the better part of your life to telling one story. You've been committed to telling the story of how humans and their activities have led to the heating of the planet, uh, to global warming, and the urgency of our need to act to change our ways. You've been telling that story for a long time. And I'm hoping you would be willing to share with us 
some of the learnings you've had from uh, from being someone who's told one story over and over for so many years in so many different ways? My involvement uh, with the story of the climate crisis when I was an undergraduate, I took a course taught by Roger Revelle, who is now recognized as one of the greatest climate scientists of all time. He opened my eyes to this uh, crisis. It was then called global warming, mostly. Uh, several years of data had uh, come into Revelle at the time that he was teaching this course. And the data told a, a remarkable story, one that I later recapitulated uh, in An Inconvenient Truth, the, the revelation from Roger Revelle that uh, humanity had reached a stage in civilization's development that we were capable of uh, rather significantly changing the ecology of the entire world. That was the basic aha moment that I experienced courtesy of Professor Ravel. I began to ask myself, how can this story be told in a way that takes the insights of this great scientist and his colleagues and simplify it into language that I can understand and therefore might be able to use in conveying the same story to others. I remember you telling me about some early days when you would put together a set of 35-millimeter crotochromes into a slide carousel, and you would go out there with um, a chair that you would stand up on so that you could point to how the chart kept going up and up. And, and, <laughs> and, um, and then I've, I wasn't there for those early presentations, but I've seen you do versions of this that got more and more sophisticated over time. You used more and more technology as the computer came around and Keynote and the tools that you used to tell the story got more sophisticated. And you, like any great storyteller, you kept honing the message. You would hear the, the, what worked with the audience and you would adapt. You would get new information. You would add it in. I'm just interested to hear you talk about that process of continually honing and upgrading that story, both for its content message and for the form that you use. I ran for president at the young age of 38. I was 40 by the time I had to leave the race. I ran largely to try to introduce that issue into the political dialogue. But after that uh, campaign was over, one of my children on April 3rd, 1988, had a very serious uh, accident. And while I was spending uh, a, a solid month in Johns Hopkins University in the intensive care unit with my child, uh, it was... Uh, quite a powerful emotional experience for me. And I remember um, taking my schedule uh, out for the weeks following and looking at all of these uh, events and obligations that had seemed to be very important and very significant when they went on the schedule and they just blew away as light as feathers. And, uh, the same with the issues that I was uh, obsessed with at the time, except for the, the climate. 
I began writing uh, my first book, Earth and the Balance, in that uh, hospital. And I began using props to try to illustrate the uh, shocking increase in CO2. I mean, you basically use every kind of technology that's available to you. And by the way, almost always you figure out how to use it to its best advantage. I mean, I just think about the app that you and I did together uh, with the Our Choice app, and that won Apple's award for best designed app of the year. What's your experience being able to tell this story over so many different forms? Um, Is it additive? Is there one that you have found to be really the most impactful? in terms of changing people's hearts and minds and and motivating people to action? Where are you in terms of choice of media? Well, I have to pause for a moment on the the app that that you suggested, and you found these uh, two brilliant young guys who put it together. And the one thing that just blew me away was when uh, the in the chapter on uh, wind, uh, when the windmill uh, came up, you could blow on the <laughs> iPhone and they had programmed the microphone to pick up that sound and the windmill's blades would turn <laughs> according to how fast you were blowing on it. <laughs> I just thought that was really very cool. But to your question is, which of the media has a, the biggest impact? Honestly, uh, there are those who say that big screen movies and a scene in a communal uh, setting in a theater is still perhaps the queen of media. I don't know if that's true anymore, but there's something particularly powerful about a movie. And it creates its own energy field because there is so much uh, commentary about movies and previews and uh, word of mouth and In my impression, a movie that hits big uh, has a huge impact. When you have both a book and a movie simultaneously, of the same title on the same topic, that more than doubles the impact of the message, I think. That's my impression. Well, certainly we've we've had that experience with An Inconvenient Truth. That was was a very special moment to be part of that and to see the worldwide impact that that film and that book had at that moment. I I think I've had some success in getting the message out there, but it has not yet reached enough people. I do think that the world is right now crossing the fabled uh, political tipping point. I really do. We still have so far to go. The crisis is such an unbelievable magnitude. The stakes are just unimaginably high. The solutions are available, but they're not easy. They will be good for us. They will improve the quality of life for everyone on earth in multiple ways, not only by saving our future, but by improving the quality of life across the board. But the inertia of the existing legacy systems and patterns is so strong, so difficult to displace. The biggest part of this journey is just ahead of us. I was going to ask, I mean, certainly there's, there are those who've been incredibly inspired by your message and the stories that you've told, and there are those who've really resisted them. And I wondered if you would talk a little bit as to why you think people, sometimes it doesn't get through, 
and why people resist it and how you have tried to address that or overcome that resistance? Well, first of all, uh, it's a complex story. All of us uh, have a natural resistance to giving over our opinions to someone who has a, a story that's very complex if we're not prepared to take the time to, to, to really get into it and to suspend disbelief. And secondly, it is a story that is global in its scope, and that is a, a barrier as well. There has also been a very highly organized and lavishly funded campaign by legacy businesses that see the acceptance of this message as a threat to their business models. There have been Pulitzer Prize winning books written about the history of their disinformation uh, campaign. Uh, billions of dollars have been spent in an effort to intentionally confuse people uh, to promulgate uh, rank falsehoods and to do it in, a, in such a sophisticated way that, that uh, many are not aware of the, the fact that, that uh, they're being deluged with these falsehoods. Uh, some are just rooted in human nature. Others are rooted in uh, commercial and financial interests uh, and unethical decisions to promote uh, lies as part of the business plan. You're somebody who clearly enjoys learning the science. And you're someone who I've, I've, I've watched you just get excited to kind of geek out with a group of scientists and, and, and really get turned on by that. And a lot of people just glaze over, right? They, they, they have no appetite for that level of detail or information. Have you found that the science is helpful in conveying the story? Does it get in the way? Uh, do you have to get people connected on an emotional level in order to get their attention and, and really get the point across? Yeah, for sure. You have to communicate on an emotional level wherever possible. It helps to connect the climate issue to other concerns people have uh, about their health, for example, uh, about their kids, the fate of places they deeply love. I mean, all the advances in uh, neuroscience uh, confirm what wise men and women have long tried to, to teach me, and, 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 and that is that, uh, you know, people, people make up their minds uh, largely with their emotions, and then sometimes uh, the, the logic and rationale comes later and, and fits what the emotions drive people toward, no question about it. I also think it, it matters uh, who the messenger is and whether there's a level of interest and empathy for the person telling the story. I, I don't know if I've ever said this to you, but I, I really felt that the success of An Inconvenient Truth, uh, the movie and the book, was based on it being your story, the resurrection of a fallen hero that you had come out of the loss of, of the 2000 election, 
you had taken some time off. Uh, I think people, you'd grown a beard. People had you talked about you wandering the woods. You know, there was this moment of you having been sort of metaphorically uh, self-banished. And, and then you came out, and you came out as a man with a mission, and this was your mission. And I know from the movie, they did a great job of showing you as this lecturing warrior with, with the saving of the planet and, and the ringing of the bell of the warning of the climate crisis as your passion. And you went from you know, small group to big group to any group you could get in front of to tell this story, to give that slideshow. And I think that people responded to the message in the movie, not because of the great science or the very uh, convincing animations that showed Florida underwater or those kinds of things, which were very memorable, but because they saw you as this being your resurrection in a way. they, They related to you as this fallen hero. I know we made that decision in the book to put, to help you share some of those personal stories that let people connect to you emotionally and therefore be able to care about your message. You know, when I was first approached by uh, Lori David, it was the first person to uh, suggest that my slideshow be made into a movie. I-, I thought it was a crazy idea. I really did. I was... Uh, Again, very naive. I, I remembered uh, being in high school and getting behind the curve in a course on Shakespeare and watching movies of Shakespeare's, of a few of Shakespeare's plays where the camera was set up somewhere in the audience uh, aimed at the stage. And I, and I just thought, oh my God, you know, stage plays put on film I said, this is going to be the same thing. You can't put a slideshow on on the screen. <laughs> Little did I know how talented uh, Davis and his team were. Uh, and, of course, they did figure out how to do it in a, in a way that I wouldn't have even begun to, to know about. But what I also love about it is, one, it's still grounded in the oral tradition, that you sort of started this with, which is to get out there and give a talk. Um, and two, that it's, it's a great example of turning storytelling into action, right? Here you are with a message that you're conveying and you're getting a, a very large group of people now to be activists, to actually go out and make a difference in their local communities. And I think that's something that, that any cause-related storyteller is trying to do. They're trying to think about how do they create a movement? How, do they, how can they tell a story that's so impactful that people will take action and, and become their advocates for the, for the message? The one time when I decided that I would start giving this slideshow on a regular basis, I was on the front deck of a houseboat Uh, on Center Hill Lake, which is near my farm here in Tennessee. I had rented um, a houseboat for a week, and a a lot of my buddies from uh, around Carthage uh, were up there on a Saturday night. We were drinking beer, and uh, I had gotten the slideshow to a point where I thought it was worth, uh, I was 
proud of it. I thought it was good. And um, so I set up the computer on the front deck of the houseboat, not a very big place, and about eight or 10 of my buddies were there. And their reaction was so gratifying to me. It was all expressed in the idiom uh, of, uh, you know, that I grew up with around here. Man, there were a lot of cuss words involved, and I'm not going <laughs> to repeat them on your podcast. But it convinced me that it was a story that uh, could connect. When I learn something new that's uh, really illuminating or startling, uh, when I have a so-called aha moment, I love to recreate that aha moment for for others. Mm. I've thought about your history of telling the story, and I wonder, do you feel more that you're kind of a Johnny Appleseed figure who's going out there and planting these seeds in people's minds, or do you sometimes feel more like Sisyphus, where you're sort of just pushing this rock up the hill and it rolls right back down and, you know, repeat tomorrow? Well, I don't think I've ever felt like Sisyphus. No, I'm, I'm optimistic by nature, and I've seen a lot of progress, a lot of progress. I feel like we're running out of time, and I feel like the stakes are so high, it, it would certainly be understandable if some people get into it for the first time and throw up their hands and say, oh, my God, we're not going to be able to do what needs to be done. I'm convinced that we can. The crisis, as of now, is still getting worse faster than we're deploying solutions for it. But we've been gaining momentum. What gives you the most hope? Well, the fact that uh, young people in the Greta Thunberg generation are now uh, so vocal and passionate. When young people got engaged in the civil rights movement, it really turned the tide. And we've seen the same in so many morally-based movements. More recently, I have uh, gotten a lot of hope from the emergence of uh, the environmental justice movement in in a much more uh, passionate form with many more people involved in it. The solutions to the climate crisis include some new technologies like solar electricity and wind electricity and electric vehicles that used to be unaffordably expensive for most uh, and just uh, niche applications. It's hard to describe how much hope I get from the the fact that uh, these solutions now uh, are coming down in cost so rapidly. It's almost like what happened with computer chips. Last year worldwide, if you look at all of the new electricity uh, generating capacity installed worldwide, 90% of it was solar and wind. Going forward, the International Energy Agency says 95% is gonna be solar and wind. And it gets cheaper still to the point where fully depreciated uh, coal and gas plants that have 20, 30 years of useful lifetime remaining uh, still can't compete. And so they're, they're shutting down existing plants now and replacing them with brand new wind and solar. Uh, and the same thing is happening uh, with electric vehicles. 
when I wrote my first book, Earth in the Balance, one of my proposals was to phase out the internal combustion engine over a 25-year period. That was in that book was published in January of 1992. So we are four years past when we would have been <laughs> free of internal combustion engines, but uh, it'll take a little more time. Any new big initiatives that that you could share that you're working on in terms of helping to tell this story? Well, yes, uh, I'm very excited about a, a new coalition that I helped to put together called Climate Trace. T-R-A-C-E stands for Tracking Real-Time Atmospheric Carbon Emissions. Uh, and this is a coalition of uh, um, tech companies uh, specializing in artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, NGOs that uh, track different parts of the, uh, of the crisis. Artificial intelligence is its own technology revolution. It is going to be uh, as consequential as, uh, as any technology revolution we have ever seen, maybe more so. In any case, uh, we are uh, hard at work, and in June, we will present uh, the world's first uh, complete inventory of the source uh, and amounts uh, of global warming pollution from every significant source on the entire planet. The creation of radical transparency with the uh, ability to tell the world where this pollution is coming from it will change a lot. I think just speaking with you, Al, it reminds me of that, that wonderful quote about never underestimate the power of a small group of committed people to change the world. In fact, it's the only thing that ever has. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, there's nothing better than getting to work on something that is much bigger than, your, than yourself, something that is of, of huge importance with people that inspire you as, as you have me. You have led many of us to feel that way, to be able to transcend the smallness of our day-to-day -day problems and, and to work on something as as global as the climate crisis. And I thank you for that personally. Godspeed and, and may you live another hundred years to keep up this work. So thank you. Well, thank you, Charlie. And thanks for your, your kind words and thanks for your in, invaluable assistance. Your work with not only books, but podcasts and movies and apps and everything else, you carry a lot of inspiration to a lot of people. So I thank you for that. And thanks for being my friend. Mm, thank you, my friend. Sending you a big hug and look forward to being able to uh, have a beer on the porch together sometime soon. Looking forward to it. All right, virtual hug back. My heartfelt thank you to Vice President Gore for joining me today on the podcast. And a special thanks again to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. If you'd like to learn more about Gore's Climate Reality Project and the important work they're doing, please visit this episode's page on the Future of Storytelling website at fost.org or by following the link in the episode's description. Our podcast is made with the help of our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to our show and consider giving us a good rating. We deeply appreciate your support. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks for another 
deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on. <laughs>